My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode six of the creative disruption season of the 21st century creative, where we are hearing stories of creatives around the world who came up with a creative response to the challenges of the pandemic. Today, we are off to Australia in the company of Charlotte Abrams, a music manager based in Melbourne with a roster of successful clients and many years' experience in the industry. Music was one of the creative sectors that was hardest hit by the pandemic. Musicians are performers. They get their energy from connection with their audience. And in recent years, they've had to rely more and more on income from gigs and tours due to the decline in royalties from recorded music. And then... After years of being told they needed to focus on live music and not worry so much about royalties, they were suddenly told they couldn't perform either. In today's interview, Charlotte talks about the devastating impact of the virus and restrictions on the music industry. But she is an incredibly upbeat and resourceful person, so she also talks about some of the silver linings she discovered when she had a lot of extra time on her hands and she used it to find new ways to support musicians as people, as well as in their career. So, just before we plunge into the rest of the episode, I'd like to share some new projects from guests from previous seasons on the podcast. Back in Season 3, Christina Patterson talked about life lessons from her book, The Art of Not Falling Apart. And she also talked in that interview about an idea she'd had for a memoir about spending her adolescence as a born-again Christian. And I'm pleased to say that she has written the memoir and it was published this year. And it's not just about her born-again Christian experience, although she does describe that very vividly. It's called Outside the Sky is Blue and subtitled A Family Memoir. So it's the story of her family, and there is a lot of sadness in the book, but also a profound sense of joy, which is summed up in that title, Outside the Sky is Blue, a book that gets my wholehearted recommendation. Those of you who were entranced by Maria Bovindelabi's mindful drumming back in season four will be delighted to know she has released her first album. It's called Skin and it incorporates her unique approach to percussion with all kinds of instruments that I can't name, but which create goosebumps every time I listen. So I think Skin is a very appropriate title. It's like nothing else you have heard, and it's available on Maria's Bandcamp, which is bovindelabe.bandcamp.com, or, for an easier-to-type link, Use 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash skin. 
Also, in season four, Robert Vlack gave us a terrific interview for freelancers based on his book, The Freelance Way. Robert continues to do great things for freelancers via his directory and educational site, freelancing.eu. And a few months ago, Robert invited me to give a talk to his community on the theme, Forget the Career Ladder, Start Creating Assets. And he has very kindly had the talk edited into a video and put it on YouTube. So you can watch the whole talk for free. Go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash asset video. This is one of the big ideas, by the way, from the podcast, probably noticed by now. And in this talk, I really run through in depth how you can start to assess your own asset creation and start to plan it for the future. So big thank you to Robert for that one. Um, I was talking to Robert the other day. He said his next mission is to get the book The Freelance Way translated into as many languages as possible. So if you are an agent who handles foreign rights and you'd like to represent a bestseller, maybe you'd like to contact Robert via his website, freelancing.eu. And last but not least, staying with the business theme, Jari Balanda, who talked to us back in season two about the entrepreneur ethos, has a new book, Story-Driven Outreach. Double or more your email response rates by telling clear, concise, and compelling stories. If you use email marketing for your creative business, and for me, it's one of the most important tools for a creative entrepreneur, then it is full of great advice on how to get people not only to open your emails, but also to engage with your writing and take action. Okay, that's it for the updates. On with the show. A few months ago, I was listening to the David Bowie Album to Album podcast, a terrific show about Bowie hosted by Arsalan Mohammed. In Season 3, Episode 11, Arsalan spoke to Donnie McCaslin, the leader of the jazz band that Bowie discovered in a New York club, and asked to work with him on what turned out to be his final album and one of his greatest masterpieces, Black Star. At one point, Donnie was talking about what it was like to be working with Bowie in the studio. He was such a dynamic you know, performer and, 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 you know, just a dynamic presence. And, and we felt it when we were recording and it was, it felt magical, you know, finish the day in the studio and, and be going home and was thinking, man, that was a great day. And I, you know, I hope that tomorrow is like that. I hope every day is like that. And I think for the most part, every day was, you know, we felt that that connection was happening in the room. You know, there were some days where it's like, you know, there's 30 alto flute overdubs, you know, it's not, it's not Sue, you know, every day. So when he says it's not Sue every day, he's referring to the track Sue or In a Season of Crime, which for him was one of the highlights of recording the album. I love Donnie's honesty here, and it rings so true. You know, even when you're working on a dream project with a superstar, on a masterpiece, and it's a transformative, magical experience, 
there can still be days when the work gets repetitive and starts to grate a little. When you've done 20 alto flute overdubs and there's still another 10 to go. When you have to grind the work out. And we're not talking about grunt work that can be automated or outsourced or delegated to someone junior. Sometimes, as in this case, it requires high artistic knowledge and judgment, but it can still get dull if you're doing the same thing over and over. And I thought, <laughs> you know, if that's true when you're working with Bowie, no wonder it's true for the rest of us. When I'm writing a book, it's checking the proofs. Of course, I have an editor and a proofreader, but I wrote the book, so I need to check it too. It's tedious. And it's also the stage where I've looked at the text so many times I never want to see it again. I just want to move on to something new. There is even a boring part of writing poetry. I usually write in metre, which means the poems have a regular rhythm, iambic pentameter or trochaic tetrameter or whatever. And there's a point where I need to go through each poem with a fine-tooth comb and check the metrical pattern for mistakes and infelicities. It's not too bad for a short poem, but my Chaucer translation is currently over a thousand lines long, and I was seeing double by the time I'd gone through all that. So sometimes there is a difficult and boring task to be done, and it needs to be done by someone like you, with high levels of artistic skill and knowledge and taste. And on those days, you need to grind it out. It's not exciting. It doesn't fit the popular romantic image of creativity. You may not want to mention it on your press interviews. But this willingness to go the extra mile, to obsess over getting all the details right, helps you filter out imperfections. And sometimes it can also add an indefinable touch of magic to the finished work. When you're facing a task like this, first of all check, can this be outsourced? Is there someone else who can do it as well or better than me? If not, it's time to put on the kettle, roll up your sleeves and grind it out. And make sure you give yourself a nice reward afterwards. Special thanks to Arsalan Mohammed for letting me use the clip from his interview with Donnie McCaslin. If you are a Bowie fan, you should definitely check out his podcast, David Bowie, Album to Album. He gets amazing guests like Reeves Gabrels and Tony Platty and Sterling Campbell and Nicholas Pegg talking about Bowie's work album by album. It's an absolute treasure trove and it's called David Bowie, Album to Album. When you set out on a creative path, there's no conventional career ladder, no job security, and the usual rules don't apply. So how can you set your course? What should you be aiming for? And how can you know whether you're making real progress or just spinning your wheels? I've spent the last 25 years coaching creative professionals to overcome these challenges and achieve their artistic and career ambitions. And I've written a book, 
21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives that collects 21 of the most powerful insights that have emerged from the thousands of hours I've spent coaching creatives like you, as well as from my own practice as an award-winning poet. The insights include Your creativity is your security. Forget the career ladder. Start creating assets. Your struggle is a clue to your superpower. Desire beats discipline. And courage may be the missing ingredient. If you'd like to know more about these insights and the other 15, then you'll find them in 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives. Available from all the major online booksellers or go to lateralaction.com slash 21 insights. That's lateralaction.com slash 21 insights. Out of all the arts and creative industries, music was one of the hardest hit by the pandemic. As today's guest Charlotte Abrams says, the banning of live performances stripped musicians of their identity as well as their main source of income. Because of the blanket ban, government support for the music industry was essential, and it's fair to say it was delivered patchily around the world. And even when the financial support was there, musicians were cut off from the human connection that is a huge part of their inspiration. Tours were cancelled, careers were put on hold, and some even decided to call it a day. So I obviously wanted to include music in the creative disruption season. And I was lucky enough to find Charlotte Abrams, a music manager based in Melbourne, Australia, who, when the pandemic struck, had years of experience to draw on to help her and her musicians see it through. As a manager, Charlotte guides the careers of artists such as Ainsley Wills and Harlow and producers Jonathan Steer and John Castle. She is a recent recipient of Australian accolades the Lighthouse Award, the Fast Track Fellowship, and the Outstanding Woman in Music Award. Charlotte comes from a background as a freelance digital strategist in creative agencies, working in some of Australia's most highly regarded agencies. In 2010, she co-founded the music blog Large Noises, a website dedicated to filming live bands in various locations around Melbourne. For the blog, Charlotte helped scout, film and edit over 50 local and international bands. Some of the videos went viral with millions of plays and were picked up by BBC Radio and other media outlets around the world. She became a campaign manager for music startup Sound Halo, working on campaigns in London for Alt-J, Muse and Atoms for Peace, which comprises Tom York, Nigel Goodrich, and Flea. Driven by passion, belief, and commitment, 
Charlotte has evolved a voluntary role in the music community into a full-time professional artist management and consultancy role. Charlotte focuses on creativity, creative strategy, and finding innovative ways for music to connect to audiences. When the pandemic struck, Charlotte was about to book tickets for a major European tour. Instead, she found herself enduring one of the longest and strictest lockdowns in the world in Melbourne. I was inspired to reach out to Charlotte when I read articles about her creative response to the restrictions on several fronts. Helping musicians create virtual gigs and sell tickets, organising a fundraiser for people in the music industry, and creating a new mentoring service for musicians as well as younger music managers. I was really struck by the fact that, faced with such an overwhelmingly difficult situation, Charlotte responded by looking outwards to her musicians, her peers, and the wider industry to see what she could do to help. In this interview, she talks about her own journey in the music business, from starting a blog and filming gigs in backyards and even bathrooms, to growing her passion project into a full-time business. She also talks about the challenges and some unexpected benefits of lockdown. One thing she emphasises in the interview is the contrast between the manic state of the music industry pre-pandemic and the different perspectives that opened up when everyone was forced to slow down. This obviously brought mental health challenges, but Charlotte also describes the slowdown as an opportunity to reflect and see what people in the music business can do better, both individually and collectively. Whether or not you're a musician, you'll likely recognise many of the challenges Charlotte describes, and I think we can all benefit from her upbeat attitude and creative response to the challenges of the pandemic. Charlotte, how did you get started in the music business? I think my story is quite common for a lot of people who are music managers, um, where it generally starts out, and it did for me, in a sort of voluntary position Mm -hmm. um, that eventually became a full-time role. So I started out working working in the acting industry. Um, That was just purely because my cousin works in the acting industry and he, you know, I finished high school and he asked me if I wanted some part-time work. And that role that I did with him uh, at an acting agency turned into kind of like a junior agent role, which is equivalent to what we would call its sort of transferable skills to a music manager as well, Mm -hmm. managing the career of actors. Yeah. Um, That was sort of a job that I was doing alongside studying film at university. Mm -hmm. And I've always just been really, really passionate about music. So my entry into music was kind of a combination of all of these things. I'd sort of learnt the skills to be a manager or an agent in my day job. I was studying film and I was really wanting to hone my skills um, as a filmmaker, an editor, a writer, a storyteller. Mm -hmm. So while I was at university, it was almost, it was partly sort of a university project that my friend Eliza and I started 
Um, her name's Eliza Hull and we studied at mm-hmm. university together. She's also an artist in Melbourne and a disability advocate. Yeah. Um, we decided to start a blog uh, that no one was really doing anything like this at the time in Australia, but it was something that you see a little bit in the UK. They have Mahogany and in France they have Logotech, mm-hmm. um, basically a blog that captures live music on film. Um, so and when was what this we were doing was started. This was in two thousand and nine, I'd say. Okay. Okay. So reasonably early. Yeah. So we were scouting bands that we loved. We naturally went to gigs quite a lot, mm-hmm. and we would see a band that we'd love. We would share it with each other because we were so passionate about it, and then we decided to offer to film them just on a voluntary basis. I was kind of wanting to learn a little bit more about filming and editing. Mm -hmm. Eliza loves writing and she was getting really into the idea of kind of like producing this content, so sort of finding the bands and being the the main communicator with the bands. Mm -hmm. And then she onboarded a sound engineer um, who is actually my now partner, um, Jonathan Steer, who so the three of us sort of co-founded this website together. Uh, the blog was called Large Noises, and we ended up filming about, like, on a volunteer, voluntary basis, filming about 50-plus bands locally. And Great. the idea was that we would film these artists in uh, locations around Melbourne to sort of showcase a little bit of Melbourne, but sometimes obscure locations like in bathrooms and bathtubs. And, um, Literally the, in bathrooms. Our, our slow, yeah, we literally filmed, we filmed a, a band. We filmed a, a Melbourne band in a bathroom, and we filmed a really amazing singer-songwriter named Oscar Lush in a bathtub, just with his Whoa. guitar and his harmonica. Um, we branched out and filmed a few international bands as well, which was mm-hmm. a highlight for us at the time. And that was sort of my entry into working in music. And what was it about music? If it's not a dumb question. But I mean, maybe it isn't such a dumb question. I love music, but I never ended up working in the industry. What was it about actually working with musicians that you that you love? I think, I mean, you'll relate to this as a poet yourself, but the thing that draws me the most to music is lyrics and always has mm-hmm. been. Um, I guess, like, I love the musicality of lyrics, of poetry and words. Yeah. Um, when it is put to music, I think what I was finding was I – identified and still do sort of identify more as a creative than a typical uh, music industry, like quote unquote, uh, Mm -hmm. industry person. Um, And I felt like I had developed a skill set that could help people. Mm -hmm. So I was finding myself in these, you know, like underground sort of bars and pubs when I was 18, 19, Mm -hmm. uh, watching bands play and going, oh, they're amazing. Uh, you know, this could be the next big thing. Yeah. Um, and then asking, oh, what? how are you releasing music or how are you getting your, your name out there? And they didn't, often they didn't know how to. So often there was this like amazing skill set within their craft, which, you know, in this case is music, yeah. but not really knowing how to market themselves. And that's, you know, I've seen that a lot across the board with creatives. Um, and then there I was really enthusiastic going, well, this comes quite naturally to me. I know, I know how to market your music because I am your audience, you know. Tell me more about that. How does 
being their audience help you? And, and what is it that comes naturally to you? Because you've mentioned this skill set a few times. I think, um, I think I have an understanding when it's music that deeply connects to me. And like mm-hmm. I said before, that's often to do with lyricism. Yeah. I found that the types of bands that I love tend to have a bit of a cult following. And what we were able to do with this website at the time was create really raw, authentic content. Um, Content wasn't really a buzzword back then, but Mm -hmm. um, beautiful, like, cinematic footage, even though, you know, we were just starting out, um, to really show a viewer, like, our, our aim was to give the viewer that feeling that music gives you or poetry gives you or a film can give you, you know. Um, something that really hits you in the heart. Yeah. And I think I had a knack for identifying that because I love that myself as an audience member. Mm-hmm. But what I realized was there are there are a lot more people like me out there out there who also are drawn to this same sort of thing, which is the authenticity and the the vulnerability and the rawness uh, of the type of music that I like. Um and so I sort of knew how to market to those people because I am one of those. That's sort of what I meant before. Okay, so that's the core of it. But how do you join the dots? You know, how do you help a band reach more people like you? So to begin with, and this is before I sort of officially became a manager, mm-hmm. um, what we were doing was we were making these videos. And I think the first one that had some success was uh, a Melbourne artist named Hayden Kalman, and we filmed him playing his song Summer, uh, which is still on YouTube, so any listeners out there. Is the whole go. blog still online? Can we link to it? It is, yeah. So, okay, well, yeah, make sure, definitely make sure we'll, we will link to it in the show notes, folks, so go and check this out. Yeah, it is, it's pretty much retired these days, but um, sometimes we think about bringing it back. But if the archive is there, then, yeah, no, nothing dies on the internet, does it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we filmed this artist named Hayden Kellnan, and I was actually in London at the time, and um, I think the version of the YouTube video that we had filmed was streamed on a radio show. I think it was on BBC Six. Mm-hmm. And so we woke up the next morning and, you know, my, the YouTube account was linked to my email and I just had hundreds of emails Whoa. of people commenting on how talented Hayden was. Yeah. And I was like, we're going viral. <laughs> you know, wow. didn't really know Hayden was going viral. But, and from then on, I think what we realised was we sort of had a knack for uh, scouting talent before mm. um, these bands blew up. And uh, probably the, the greatest example of that was um, an artist named Vance Joy who has a song called Riptide, and we filmed him playing Riptide with his ukulele in our backyard. Um, I think that song's had over a billion streams these days From on Spotify. Backyard. It went... Backyards and bathrooms. This is terrific. Yeah. So it, his, a few weeks after we filmed it, and this isn't to do with us filming it, it was just like the song got released and it really connected, and he just went to number one all over the world. Um, Whoa. So we were, what we were finding was that we were sort of scouting, like, you know, local Melbourne talent. Um, just it came from such a pure and passionate place of just a couple of music lovers at uni mm. knowing maybe we can film these bands. Uh, and that led me into forming connections and friendships and relationships with people who work in the music industry, whether that was 
managers or publicists or booking agents just purely through booking these bands. Yeah. And I found myself, as I said before, like probably more aligned with the artists and a lot of my friends are artists, whether it be, you know, music or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I, um, having worked in the acting industry as an agent and also at that point in time studying communications, I was learning a lot about how to, how to market products or, um, you know, in this case, music. So I, I sort of just started volunteering myself to, do you want me to write your press release for you? Because it mm-hmm. came really naturally to me and to some people you know, my friends would say, oh, I've been trying to work on this bio for days and I just can't get it right. And I'd be like, I love writing bios. Why don't you send it to me? So it really started out from like kind of a voluntary place of like building a portfolio and just wanting to help people who I thought were talented. Must have been a dream come true for them because this is all the stuff. I mean, I hear about this week in, week out. I'm sure you do. People will say, well, I just want to do the my creative thing, my artistic thing. I want someone else to take care of the the business side of things, and you are that fairy godmother by the sound of it. I mean, I honestly can't even imagine what it would be like to have to have someone come into your life and say, I'll take care of everything, you just focus on being creative. Um, I think that, that, you know, uh, and I'm looking at this objectively at other managers I know, it really is like it's quite a selfless pursuit. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to talk to you about it because, you know, the angle of your podcast is around creativity. And I appreciate being put in a um, in a creative space because often people will look at the relationship of, you know, all of the different people in the music industry and they look at the band and the artist and they go, they're the creatives. But really there are so many creative people who sit behind the scenes as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, and yeah. I think, I mean, this for me, the more time I spend on it, the more I realize creativity is really a team sport so obviously you have i mean a lot of us think that we have impeccable taste in music and a a lot of the time i think it's a bit of a delusion but in your case there does seem to be evidence that you you had a really good eye and a good ear for talent and you were able to present that to the world in a way that other people could relate to it and you developed that into your own management agency is that right yeah, so I think by this point in terms of like my day job and career, I'd sort of moved on to working at uh, what we call creative agencies, um, mm-hmm. digital agencies, advertising agencies, yeah. which, um, you know, are quite similar to the process we just spoke about, really collaborative process of working alongside people to market a mm-hmm. product. Yeah. Um, and so, again, I was sort of still building that skill set and I think the the sort of voluntary management position just started out with um two people who I'd met who are a band called Harlow who I still manage to this day mm-hmm. um they sort of said oh we've got this cd and it was really really high quality uh you know it was a five track ep and it was back when you know people were still listening to cds mm-hmm. and they're like I don't really know we don't know what to do with it but we've made you know 300 copies of our cd and I didn't really know what to do with it either, but I sent right. it to a friend of mine who was a musician in New York and she said, oh, well, I'm, I've, she had a blog and she said, you know, I'm putting this mixtape together, I'll pop 
I'll pop one of their songs on this mixtape. Mm-hmm. And when I say mixtape, it was on SoundCloud, so it wasn't actually a physical mixtape. Yeah. And she popped it on there and then they started getting all these emails from mainly from the States just saying, I love your stuff, you know, like so-and-so from Atlantic A&R. And, and they wow. were like, we, we don't know what to do with this. So they sort of, <laughs> I was like, forward them to me. I love writing emails. So mm-hmm. again, I was like, and that was, that was the entry into becoming a manager. Um, it took me about seven more years to actually turn it into a full-time job and build a roster. But that was the beginning. Okay, can we fast forward a little bit then to late 2019? And I'm curious to hear, you know, obviously before the coronavirus hit the headlines, what was your work life looking like at that point? And what were your plans for 2020? So at that point in time, it was very touring heavy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, not all managers become tour manager hybrids. Yeah. But when you start out managing developing acts, um, sometimes tour managers are unaffordable at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So I love traveling and I love live music. So I would say 2019 was pretty much jam-packed full of tour managing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, traveling alongside bands, yeah. um, both nationally within Australia and internationally. Mm-hmm. and 2020 was looking to be much of the same. Yeah. And I think when I look back in hindsight, I was very close to experiencing quite severe burnout, but I just, I had no idea that that was the case until the pandemic, which my friend um, who also works in music, her and I refer to it as we were unfairly dismissed. Like it was like an unfair (laughs) dismissal from our jobs. But there was no, there was no, uh, you know, sort of no one to look after us. Um, But we, I've spoken to a lot of managers and crew, tour managers, sound engineers, lighting engineers. I think the general consensus is that everyone uh, had the opportunity to stop and pause and reflect on how they were working. Mm-hmm. When I think about how I was working late 2019, up 2020 was already completely planned out and it was, I was all going to be all over the world. And so at what point did you get, did you get the unfair dismissal notice or what point did you realise, oh, hang on a minute, this is going to be serious for me and my musicians? Interestingly, it was, I was about to book flights for a major European tour. Mm-hmm. And um, I joke about how I was getting a lot of my news source from my mum at the time mm-hmm. because everybody was talking about this coronavirus and I found that it was, this is sort of like early January, I found that it was just sort of stressing me out, this impen- impending virus that was mm. in China at the time and no one really knew how it was affecting people. And one day I was just happened to be on the phone to my mum and I said, I'm about to book all of these flights. And she said, I don't think you should do that. And I think like thinking back at the time, I was like, is she overreacting? She's like, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we should, this coronavirus, like it's starting to break out. I think at that point in time, you know, is when the cases were starting to break out in uh, Italy and Greece mm-hmm. from memory. Um, yeah. And she just said, I think you should hold off on booking flights, which was such a good thing because, you know, I was about to book international flights for a tour party of eight and Whoa. people still haven't received refunds on on those flights, you know, like they've oh. all just been credited. 
So thankfully, I think that was the point in time where I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll hold off and maybe we'll give it a week or so. And within a couple of weeks, um, I was actually, I went to a workshop with one of the artists that I manage mm-hmm. and we had just flown in from Sydney to Melbourne and then we drove to this workshop and when we got there, the host of the workshop greeted us and said, oh, you didn't touch anyone at Melbourne Airport, did you? And we were like, what does that mean? <laughs> just did, it had, no, had no context. Uh, like, no. <laughs> um, and she was like, well, apparently the coronavirus is in Melbourne Airport. And that was the first I'd heard of it right. hitting Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And then I think Melbourne ended up being in the, I think it's the longest lockdown in the world. Ooh, that's not a record you want to hold, is it? No. Unless you were very burnt out and um, also needed a bit of a rest. <laughs> okay, well, maybe we'll come on to that. But I mean, just tell you know, because obviously we've got listeners all over the world. Everyone had a different experience of lockdown. What what was the lockdown situation like in Melbourne? How strict was it? It was very strict. It was um, there were I think in total uh, we you know we would joke it was five or six sort of major lockdowns, and we would joke like, is this lockdown five point one or five point two? Because the rules would slightly change. Yeah. Um, I think at its strictest, there was, um, there were, you weren't allowed to travel more than five kilometres. Um, you could only leave the house for three reasons. And I think that was medical. It's funny that it wasn't that long ago, but mm. I've sort, of, sort of blocked it out now. It yeah. was um, for medical reasons, for supermarket shopping, um, and for, what was the third reason? Oh, to get tested, I think, right. um, to yeah. get a, you know, to get tested for coronavirus. Um, and there was a curfew, which sometimes was 8 p.m., sometimes was 9 p.m. Um, there were sort of border blockages between metropolitan Melbourne and what is considered to be regional. Mm-hmm. Uh, they Regional had, I was actually based in regional for a large portion of the pandemic and the yeah. rules were slightly more lax there. Okay. But within, within uh, the city, it was really, really strict. And you know, it was quite, um, my, in my experience, you know, speaking to other young people, it was pretty damaging to people's mental health. Even just speaking to colleagues of mine who were in Sydney, they had such a different kind of energy to anyone who was in Melbourne because it all up went on, on and off for almost 12 months of being in pretty strict lockdowns and not being able to see friends and family. So this is a pretty dramatic shift from jet setting around the world on international music tours what was going through your mind at that point and also I guess because it it wasn't just you you had the musicians that you were taking care of right yeah yeah so I think that was quite a common and still is um sort of a, a common issue for managers was sort of also not just learning how to be resilient yourself but learning how to help creatives cope through mm. them having a huge part of their identity stripped away from them. And when I say that, I'm referring to live music because, yeah, um, yeah in, the, in the realm of like that I work in, most people, their major source of income was live. Yeah. And when that was just gone, there was, you know, you're dealing with a lot of friends and colleagues who are musicians who are just not getting any feedback. So. Um, I don't think it was overly motivating to be writing at that point in time either when Mm. uh, I know that a lot of 
sort of industry went, well, this is the perfect time to write. You know, you're locked in a house and it's like, but no one's having any experiences. So Yeah. Yeah, which brings its own kind of pressure, doesn't it? I mean, I've spoken to a few people who felt who felt guilty that they weren't writing the great lockdown novel or in this case album or whatever. But I mean it's not Yeah. You know, creativity can be mysterious and it's but it's maybe not a great mystery why not everyone was a fount of creativity during the kind of lockdown that you've described. Yeah. So how did you respond to this? I mean, firstly for you and then and then for your musicians. At what point did you did you start to see, okay, this this is this is gonna be my game plan through this? I think um we had quite a health first kind of approach within not just the roster of musicians and producers I work with, but the colleagues and, you know, the wider team that we had appointed. Mm-hmm. It was really around and when I say health first, I mean like emotional health as well as physical health. It was around yeah. staying safe. You know, we didn't know what this virus was at that point in time. There was no vaccine. Um, so just like doing whatever you can to look after yourself, as well as there was a lot of just checking in on how people were doing in the early stages. Mm-hmm. I was, um, we almost had like a little bit of a joke between us that it was, you know, a forced, a forced break to begin with. And that was, there was some, there was something sort of appealing in that to go, well, we don't have to be rushing around from airport to airport and mm-hmm. changing currencies. And, um, you know, as sad as it was, like we were holding on to hope that this is in sort of like February, March, we were holding on to hope that, you know, things might reopen later in the year and some yeah. of those concerts might still go ahead. Yeah. Um, and then I would speak to, you know, my my news source, my mom or <laughs> one of my <laughs> colleagues in Sydney who is an absolute, you know, was really, really following the situation and he was saying, I don't think it's going to open by the end of the year. I think we're going to be. So I, I had, I think I sort of, you know, the old, um, the word that got thrown around the most, I kind of pivoted into relying on my digital marketing background mm-hmm. and skills. Yeah. A lot of the projects that I had worked on before and, you know, dating right back to the blog I started when I was 18 mm-hmm. um, was about finding an audience in an online capacity. So I think the first idea that I wanted to execute uh, was to work alongside Jonathan Steer, who's a sound engineer here, who yeah. I started Large Large Noises, the blog with. And um, he had created a studio setting um, that he he made it so that it was possible to be completely isolated within that studio as a one person. Mm-hmm. So as an artist, you could go into the studio and he could operate the studio from another location. Um, so there was oh. no risk of infection and it was completely legal at the time. So our first sort of venture was almost an extension of the blog that I told you about. We started um, we started a little platform that doesn't exist now because it was kind of an on-demand platform yeah. um, where we filmed and recorded some online solo concerts mm-hmm. and we found a way. I worked with like a a web developer and a designer um, to find a way to monetize it. So we partnered with Ticketmaster and it was very, very early days when people were open to the concept of streaming and, you know, watching online concerts from their homes. Um, And it was a great little revenue stream for a while. And then I think what happened was people, particularly in Melbourne, got... um, 
frustrated with having to watch concerts online. So around the time we started to feel that as well, we thought mm-hmm. maybe we'll put that idea to bed. But that was the first, the first sort of thing that we executed, um, first idea that we executed. And that had, you know, it was an idea that I wanted to work on prior to the pandemic, um, having spoken a lot to Eliza, who I started Large Noises with back in the yeah. day, about accessibility. Mm-hmm. We we had a really interesting conversation about um, a gig that I'd put on that was sort of at a, uh, it's a, it was a seated gig at the Melbourne Recital Centre. And I had three pregnant women email me to say, oh, I missed out on tickets and I was so excited about this gig because it was seated. And I said, oh, that's funny. Like, I've never even thought about the fact that if you're like seven, eight months pregnant, you're not going to want to go to like a sweaty band room. Like you must mm. just be missing out on music altogether. Yeah. But if it's a seated venue, then, you know, you can access music. And then I had this, obviously there's a much bigger conversation around that, which is around accessibility and people who mm-hmm. have disability or people who are homeless. Or we started to talk about all of these audiences who might just miss out on live music altogether. And I think it kind of came from I'd seen this film about Leonard Cohen and how he used to go into the prisons and play for people, Mm. uh, play live for people. And so I had this idea that we could try and create, you know, a really beautiful high quality online concert and show people who live regionally or are disabled or are pregnant or have social anxiety that they could still access music that way and and live music that way, Um, which I think is something that, the pandemic opened up, like in terms of accessibility, you know, the Melbourne Comedy Festival's on at the moment and I've noticed that you can buy an online ticket for that now, which was never a thing in the past. Right, right. So it sounds like that gave you and and obviously the wider industry the opportunity to reflect on things like that that might have been seen as, an I don't know, a nice to have or something that we either hadn't thought about or hadn't quite got round to before. Yeah, and I think that also people assumed it was quite a costly thing to do and mm-hmm. then musicians realised that they could really just, you know, with one uh, decent microphone, they could record content from their homes, from their bedrooms, and their audiences were responding to that. That's quite a discovery, isn't it? Yeah, I think that sort of leads into, um, you know, a lot of people upskilling themselves is something that I observed from the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh a lot of musicians were upskilling themselves during the pandemic, which anything that can allow a musician to be more creatively free is for the best. So to not have to be stuck with a particular producer or a particular studio and to actually learn how to record parts at home and mix Mm -hmm. their own music, I think was really beneficial. But um, that was, you know, one of like very few things that came out of the pandemic that probably was beneficial to a creative person or, a, in this case, a musician. Um, while really what happened was we watched our industry just get almost completely decimated. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we are looking for kind of silver linings and slivers of hope. So that is that is one. But, I mean, the big picture, it was, it was, and for the music industry in particular, it was really one of the ones that was worst affected by all of this. Yeah, and I did an interview really early on with a with a London-based journalist named William Ralston who was doing a piece on uh on the music industry globally and he was asking how it affected me as a, you know, freelance manager with mm-hmm. independent artists. And what the article kind of 
um, presents to you is that without the live music revenue stream, some artists are not left with any cash flow. And if an yeah. artist doesn't have cash flow, you know, the manager usually works on a commission basis, so the manager yeah. doesn't have cash flow either. And that's what I watched sadly happen is a lot of managers and artists going, you know, dipping back into those corporate jobs uh, to stay afloat. Okay, so I think we've established you and your musicians did not have your challenges to seek. I mean, the big picture was horrific, and there's, there's no sugarcoating that. But, I mean, wh- where did you go next? Wh- what, did, what was your response about where you could be most effective? I think one of the sort of blessings of having more time was that I would often receive emails from people um, who would say, you know, can we catch up for a coffee? I wanted to pick your brain. I've got a few questions about my music. Like this mm-hmm. would come from artists who were generally self-managed and didn't have a team, but often really, really talented. And I guess like we were, you know, talking about when I started out, uh, that was something that I did. I fulfilled every time anyone asked me, could I have a coffee or can we catch up for a drink yeah. or anything? I would say, yeah, 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 let's do that. You know, I had a real yes person mentality. Mm-hmm. And then because uh, touring and traveling was like eating up so much of my time, I, you know, ha- there's a little bit of guilt that I had, not not that I owe anything to anyone, but sometimes I would I would have loved to have been able to sort of sit down and have lunch with someone and brainstorm how to release their music. And I wasn't able to do that. So then when the pandemic hit, I found myself with a lot more time and I was able to offer those services in like a mentoring or consulting capacity. Mm -hmm. It started off with me just saying, I've got a couple of hours on a Friday afternoon. I think I might just offer that to, um, the first person that I sort of started to work with was a manager who was, he was actually my assistant mm-hmm. and he helped with all of the logistics for the live shows. And then suddenly I didn't have a job for him anymore. Yeah. Um, but he's also a manager himself and he's, you know, a really talented manager. And I, um, I sort of said to him, like, I don't really have any work for you, but do you want to do some mentoring? Like maybe every Friday we can get together for an hour and we can talk about your business. And, you know, it wasn't something that I, had any help with when I was at that point in my career. And I think I could have really, it would have really helped me to have someone to bounce ideas with. Mm-hmm. And that's where it began. And I, through doing that, uh, once a week on Zoom, sort of talking about, you know, his business plan and his ideas and whatnot led me to going, I might just make this actually a bit more of a formal offer, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't, I didn't really formalize in any way. I guess I just told a few people and then were spread around and it was just sort of like, you know, I, was, I started offering these uh, consultancy sessions and then I created like a mentor program for an emerging artist, um, which was amazing. You know, I worked with an artist named Julia Wallace who's based in Western Australia uh, on releasing their music for the first time. Yeah. And uh, that was, was really creative and it was, um, it sort of made me realise why I started doing it in the first place was to help artists like facilitate a career for an artist where they could sort of like it sounds it sounds a bit cliche but like bring out their best selves like mm-hmm. learn about who they are as people do they need a big team around them or are they better off to release independently or are they someone who needs 
assistance with visuals or do they know how to draw pictures themselves and could we like could it be a yeah. bit more of a DIY sort of thing so it became like a really really creative pursuit uh talking to a lot of uh independent self-managed artists which led me to thinking that there really should be a new model of management where you don't have to commit to someone for x amount of years Mm-hmm. Uh, and sign contracts and whatnot. Some of these people just needed another person to bounce ideas off. So maybe for someone who hasn't done mentoring before, could you just talk a little bit about what you actually cover in these sessions, what the conversations are about, maybe how it's different to what you were doing as a manager? Yeah, absolutely. I, As a manager, it's a really all-encompassing role. Mm-hmm. Um, you are invested in every single part of that person's career and, you know, also their lives in a sense because you need to get to know someone um, quite well to sort of understand how they operate in different environments and whether that be like promotional or interviews or, um, you know, backstage or whatever that might be. Um, These mentoring sessions that I was offering were sort of one-hour sessions um, that always began with, from a strategic place. For, from my perspective, that's kind of what I love the most is talking to someone and saying, what is it that you want out of your career? What are your goals? What drives you? What, you know, what gives you that spark that we talked about before, mm. that passion? Um, and how can I help them form a team? How can I help them find like-minded people who might love their music but also gel with them personally? Um, who are the sort of publicists I can introduce them to or labels mm-hmm. I can introduce them to. So with every session, uh, whether, you know, it was sort of more of a mentoring role or a consulting role, it would be me answering questions about industry questions. Um, you know, there's not a lot of resources out there to help new artists about how all the different roles interact and what they actually need on their team or how yeah. payment works if you do get a manager, That those sorts of questions, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then also just um, giving advice about their music. And I, and I don't mean that in a, a musically creative way. I wasn't doing any sort of like, oh, the piano should be turned down. <laughs> two kind of, I don't really operate like that. It was more, um, you know, maybe introducing them to the right producers or, mm. the, you know, people who I thought they might gel with. And then often with the, with the uh, manager. So I ended up doing this mentoring with both artists and managers because I felt like, you know, we were so close to losing a whole generation of new managers um, because there was just no way for them to kind of get these projects off the ground without live shows uh-huh. or, it was, or it was really difficult for them. So with some of the ongoing ones, the mentoring and consulting ended up, resulted in me creating strategies for them, whether that be a six-month strategy or a 12-month strategy or, a, you know, two to three-year strategy. I sort of would take... Um, it was almost like doing like a research project or something, you know, take all of the commonalities from every interview and consolidate it into a document to go, this is what I think you want and this is how I think you can achieve it. It sounds to me, Charlotte, like you're someone who is really motivated to help. Definitely. People. And, you know, your instinct is was, you know, way back when was to look at a band and think, well, they, they need help connecting with an audience. In the middle of the pandemic, I'm hearing you looking at what do people need? What would be helpful that I can do for them? 
now that, as you say, their main identity has been stripped away. And you're even looking to the health of the management industry and saying, well, we're, gonna, we're in danger of losing this generation. How sustaining was this for you personally, just being feeling useful, feeling helpful in the midst of so much chaos? Yeah, I definitely think that there's an element of, um, you know, feeling good about being able to sort of use my skill set at the time to help mm-hmm. other people. Um, I think that at times I felt a little bit burnt out by, uh, and I think most managers, a lot of people in music in general would say this, by um, the opportunities for new musicians just decreasing so quickly. So it started out quite hopeful and then, you know, you start speaking to record labels and they go, I absolutely love this band that you've sent me, but we've got a backlog from 2020 who are waiting to release music and we're not signing anyone new at the moment. So it started out feeling like this is great. I'm using my skill set. And then it sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, eventually at times has felt a little bit helpless and I've had to kind of explain that this is new territory for all of us. And these are the Mm. things that we can focus on. And that might be making music and making really good music or, or, or creating all of the content that surrounds a release. But it doesn't necessarily mean that a label's going to sign you this year, you know? Um, so, okay, I think looking at the big picture again, we can all agree it would have been better if this thing had never happened, and particularly with the impact it's had on music and uh, other performing arts. But picking up on the idea, you know, the, looking for the little slivers of comfort, the, um, you know, the flashes of silver lining, like, for instance, the upskilling you mentioned earlier on, as, as we hopefully look to a, a, a more open future where live gigs are more of a thing again and, and the industry picks up, what, if anything, do you think that musicians and the industry as a whole can take forward? What new options are there that maybe weren't there before? I think one new option that I've identified amongst managers and musicians are these new ways of working together. Like I said before, um, you know, the management model is generally quite long-term contracts. I noticed that a lot of other managers did what I did and they started offering their skills on a consulting basis, um, which I think has empowered artists and that's kind of, uh, you know, where my sort of drive came from from the very beginning um, was to find ways to empower creative people to be able to mm-hmm. upskill themselves, to understand the industry that they work in and how it operates because, you know, it's such a, it's an age-old saying that knowledge is power. But I think when the music yeah. industry was moving so, so quickly, often artists didn't even know what positions they were getting themselves into and I would speak Mm -hmm. to you know within my roster I was always very very conscious of making sure everybody fully understood the terms of the deals that they you know might be getting into which were often very artist friendly flexible deals but I know Mm -hmm. a lot of friends um there was this like sense of urgency before the pandemic and a lot of friends who were artists would signed to the first manager they met or the first booking agent they met or the first record label they met. And then yeah. if it doesn't go well, often that's enough to deter someone from working in the industry altogether, which is, you know, sadly mm. something that I've seen happen 
often more often than not to young women than young men in in my experience of talking to people it seems Mm -hmm. to be really really common that uh young women get burnt quite young and then decide to sort of put down music forever or they come back to it years and years later um what i think the pandemic taught us by sort of slowing everything down was to sort of take a good look at the revenue streams for one and ask Mm -hmm. ourselves why is it that when gigs stop there might not be any cash flow well obviously that's a much bigger conversation around the streaming model and you know Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who sort of um, invested a lot more in buying vinyls and buying merch to try and keep their favorite artists afloat during that time but it's made us yeah like myself and, you know, Ainsley, for example, who's Ainsley Wills, an artist that I manage, it's made us reflect on um, different ways that we can release music in the future so that we're not so reliant on touring and live shows. Um, And I think in general with like the consulting model, I've seen people just make more informed, patient decisions uh, as opposed to what I explained before the example of rushing into working with the first person that they've met, it sort of allowed a bit more time for everyone to have meetings over Zoom or uh, get to know each other and make really sort of strategic, careful decisions with their careers, which I think is a really good thing. Well, amen to that. I mean, as a coach, I think, you know, this is a huge part of what I do is just get people to stop and slow down and, and, it's not like I'm telling them what to do, but it's just giving them a chance to really think through what, what the decision is, what their reasons are for going one way or the other, and, and making that well-considered decision. So, huh, that's an interesting take on it, the fact that, you know, slowing down, um, it, it was a pretty frenetic industry, and maybe, obviously, there's an energy to that that we never want to lose from music, but maybe there's a um you, you could balance that with a bit more downtime and, and 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 slowing down to think things through yeah i definitely agree that there's you know there's an energy that needs to there's an energy and there's a sense of ego that needs to go into performance uh, or a song mm-hmm. but then there is yeah. sometimes an energy sense of ego behind the scenes in what we refer to as like the industry itself which is quite uh-huh. toxic and i think yeah from my own from my own personal experience um the biggest thing that i learned when i found myself mentoring and consulting with like very like-minded people was that possibly in the past i was finding myself in situations with people who i didn't actually share the same values as so yeah. when yeah. when you said before you seem like you're driven by helping people that's I've noticed that that's quite common in managers within music. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, quite difficult to find in other in other realms of the industry at times. Uh, not to say yeah. not to say that there is, um, you know, there is no one who's driven by helping people. But often, often, um, you know, sadly, people are driven by um, money or sort of exploiting artists and. That's, you know, that's something that yeah. we saw during the pandemic in within our very sort of like geographically small part of the world. Um, there was a huge takedown of the music industry during the panic, uh, during the pandemic, sorry. Um, there was basically um, Australia had its, its hashtag Me Too moment 
during the quiet times mm-hmm. and a lot of people uh, at the top lost their positions um, due to, you know, musicians and whatnot coming forward and sharing their stories about toxicity. Oh, really? Yeah. So a bit of a day of reckoning for the industry. Yeah, which I think was had to happen. It was sad, I think, that it happened at such a difficult time as well because it was for mm. some people they were just overwhelmed with, well, I've lost, I've lost all the good things about music and about my career and now I'm daily receiving information about these terrible, terrible people that work behind the scenes mm. in music. So I think I was partly driven mm. by that as well to, to sort of show people like there's, you know, there are um, like caring and compassionate people who work behind the scenes as well, which are most of my friends in the music industry are those people. Unfortunately, I think there was an older generation that didn't operate like that. Well, let us hope that that spirit is carried forward into the, the future of the industry. So, Charlotte, thank you. You've really taken us on quite an extraordinary journey. Pre and during pandemic, hopefully we're moving to post-pandemic before too long, um, this would be, I think, a nice time for you to share your creative challenge with our listener. So if anybody, if you're listening to this and this is your first time with the show, this is the point in the interview where I ask my guest to set you, dear listener, a creative challenge. So this is something that is related to the theme of the interview and is designed to stretch you creatively, personally, maybe even professionally as well, and something that you can do or get going on within seven days of listening to this conversation. So Charlotte, what's your creative challenge? Yes, so... This was one of the benefits of everything slowing down and I had a lot more time to talk uh, philosophically with one of my clients, Ainsley Wills, who is an amazing musician Mm -hmm. but also one of the most creative people I know. And she said to me, it was such a simple task, but she said to me, don't overthink this too much, but when we hang up, uh, you have to do this task where you write down on a piece of paper what makes me feel the most me. And then underneath that, just stream of consciousness, write the things that make you feel the most you. Huh. I love that. That's so simple. And yet it's, well, it's got me thinking already. I think I, obviously I always do the creative challenges, but particularly this one, I think is, is definitely something that I want to go in. What a lovely question. It it was also really interesting because I tasked a few of my friends with it as well. And the things that end up on your list you sometimes, I'll give an example of something that ended up on my list. I wrote down swimming. And if you asked me at that point in time, mm. when was the last time I went swimming? Uh, it was probably yeah. a couple of years. So it's like, why aren't we doing these things more often? Yes, very good. Very good question. So there's quite a lot of implications of this, I think, that I'm sure there will be creative benefits. Because, you know, when we're, when we are most ourselves, that's as you were saying, that's what we value the most in artists, not to mention personal benefits. But I think it's, I'd rather not go and talk too much about that because that will be a, a side effect of, of the main thing, which is just being you, yeah. being yourself. Lovely. Thank you so much for that, Charlotte. Um, so where can people go to find you online? And I'm curious, are you still offering the mentoring service? Is that available? I am, yeah. I'm quite booked up at the moment. But mm-hmm. um, I do have a website which has mm-hmm. all of the details on there, which is just 
www.hearhearegroup.com, which is H-E-A-R-H-E-A-R group. Hear, hear group. Lovely. That's the one. Dot com. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm also not overly active, but I'm on Instagram and I do share some updates on there. Um, just as Instagram.com slash Charlotte Abrams, which is A-B-R-O-M-S. Brilliant. So I will obviously make sure that these links are in the show notes, as usual. Charlotte, thank you so much. It's been really inspiring. And, you know, as I was saying earlier on, I really wanted to cover the music industry because it's been so hard hit. And I, I really think you've, you've told a, an inspiring story in very difficult circumstances. So thank you very much. For thank that. you so much for having me, Mark. It's been great to chat to you. You have been listening to the 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's episode with more about my guest, as well as all the backlist episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you will subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and take a few seconds to swipe and leave a rating for the show. If you would like to take the 21st Century Creative Foundation course to help you carve out an original creative career, you can sign up and get the whole course for free at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.